is a picture of how often the Jews had a, a relationship when it came to certain parts of the law. They would see certain things and be like, that's not allowed, that's not allowed, that's not allowed. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, a new covenant is established. A new relationship takes place. And the things that once were no longer allowed are now allowed, especially when it comes to the topic and the issue of dietary laws. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm fairly confident that nobody here this morning thought we were going to be discussing dietary laws. But I think it's important for us to understand the context and the concept of this because under the new covenant, ushered in by Christ, all foods are now permitted. But now that the certain foods are now permitted, indeed all foods are now permitted, it's actually pointing to an even greater reality, that the gospel is for all. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family, and we're going to take these next few weeks into a mini-series called Gospel for All. We're going to be looking at what happens here in Acts 10 and 11 and seeing how this is transformative when it comes to the gospel getting to the nations. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it's in part because of what takes place here in Acts chapter 10. The book of Acts is written by Luke, probably around the, the early 60s, written to a guy named Theophilus. He's giving an historical account of the early church. We've seen how the church was born in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost and the church is established and then multiplies outward from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria, which Jesus promised would happen in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What we've seen so far through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts is that generally the majority of these new believers are Jewish. They have Jewish pedigree. They were born and raised into Jewish families, but now they've trusted in Christ. But then comes a significant pivot in the narrative. We're about to see how the gospel is now going to spread to the Gentiles. And this is where we pick up. In Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, and the scripture says this. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, he was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. God's heart is for all peoples of the earth to come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is not exclusively for one specific ethnicity, race, or nationality, but indeed the gospel is for all. Well, in his divine providence, God ordains a meeting between a Roman military leader named Cornelius and the apostle Simon Peter. But before the meeting officially takes place, I want you to notice in the text how God sets the stage for a Gentile Pentecost and what this means for us today. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that salvation is for all who open their heart to the Lord. Verse 1 begins in Caesarea. Caesarea is a coastal city on the Mediterranean Sea right there in Israel. Herod the Great built this city in honor of Caesar Augustus. To pay for this city, Herod forced traders to use it as a primary port, and then he would heavily tax them. And at the time of Acts 10, Caesarea was a bustling Roman seaport city, complete with Roman baths and breathtaking views of the sea. Uh, back in March, I, I took this picture of Caesarea uh, when we were over there, and this is the amphitheater. In this amphitheater, you can see where thousands of people would gather for entertainment, for, for singing, for shows. Right in the very middle, you'll see in the middle of the amphitheater, it looks like a square. That was a place for the governor to sit. This being the place where the governor of Judea would live in Caesarea, that would be where Pontius Pilate would sit to take in the shows of the day. In fact, what I'd like to do is show you another picture I took up on the environmental projections here on these walls. If you turn around from where I just took that picture on the amphitheater, you turn, this is what you see. Right in front of you is the Mediterranean Sea. Right here down the middle is the palace of the governor. This is where Pontius Pilate would live. There'd be beautiful gardens over here off to the side. Archaeologists have found over here on this side a pool that was dug right there as part of the palace, almost like an infinity pool that the governor would live in. Over here, way off to your right, is the Hippodrome. At the Hippodrome, they would have horse races, gladiator battles, and that's where many Christians would be executed for being followers of Jesus, and it would be for the sake of sport and entertainment. This is Caesarea, a city that's bustling, lots of seaport focus here. This would, we'll get there eventually later on in Acts, but this will be the city through which the gospel will be sent out as we see Paul and others leave by ship out of this port, taking the gospel outward to the nations. 
It would be here that Pontius Pilate would be uh, setting up his governorship. He would live here. He would make periodic trips over to Jerusalem for festivals like Passover, which would bring him into contact with Jesus on that providential day. But this would have been his primary home. And it's here in Caesarea where Cornelius is verse 1, a centurion of the Italian regiment, which means he oversees 100 men in the Roman army. Cornelius is a leader of leaders. He carries authority. He could snap his fingers and he could command for anyone to be executed, to be tortured, or to have their home destroyed. Being in the Roman military made him an adversary of the Jewish people. He's a Gentile and he's fighting for the enemy. That's not the full story. According to our text, Cornelius is also a God-fearer, which means though he is a Gentile, he has converted to Judaism in every way except circumcision. He's not a polytheist like the Roman culture. He did not bow down to all these gods and goddesses of the pantheon of Greek and Roman deities. Rather, he, he worshiped Yahweh. He obeyed and worshiped the Lord. Furthermore, the text tells us, verse 2, he was a devout man. He feared God along with his household. Cornelius was committed to obeying the law and then leading his wife and his children towards obedience of the Lord. He was a generous giver, verse 2. He sought the Lord in prayer. He is, this is a man who was respected and held in high esteem by both the Romans and the Jews. That's a pretty impressive resume. Those are two groups that hate each other, and yet he was respected by both. But in his sovereign wisdom, the Lord saw fit to use this one man, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, this God-fearer, as a catalyst that will start a movement to reach millions of Gentiles with the gospel. An angel appears to him in a vision one afternoon and calls him by name, Cornelius. And then the angel tells him, the Lord has seen your acts of charity. He has heard your prayers. You see, Cornelius sought the Lord, and now the Lord is seeking Cornelius. It's amazing to me. If maybe you're here this morning, and you're new to church, and you're just kind of checking things out to see what is all this about, or maybe you're new to Christianity, just trying to learn about Jesus, and just trying to say, okay, what, is, what are these things that they believe, things that they're about? Or maybe you're someone who is a mature believer. You've been following Jesus for years, and you've been growing in grace. May I say to you, God will meet with you when you seek him with all of your heart. God will meet with you when you seek him with all of your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Hebrews eleven six. now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you are in Christ, hear me, you are as close to the Lord as you want to be. God is, does not play cosmic hide and seek from his children. 
If you seek him with all of your heart, the Lord will draw near to you. He will meet with you. When we repent of sin and run to Christ, the Lord loves to meet with us and to change us. He receives us with open arms. Beloved, hear me. You are accepted in Jesus. God delights in you. And when you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here is Cornelius, a man who is seeking the Lord, a man who is pursuing the Lord, and the Lord comes and meets with him. Question, are you seeking hard after the Lord? Do you have a heart that seeks to know him and follow him and abide in him? Do you hunger for the Lord? Are you thirsty for his word? Do you desire him? If you find yourself falling more into the Revelation 3.16, where your faith is becoming lukewarm, I say to you, just right where you're seated right now, right where you are, when you're watching at home or at work or wherever you are, would you seek the Lord? Just right where you are, would you say, God, would you speak to my heart? Would you open my heart to you? I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to seek you. You see, when you open your heart to the Lord, God will draw near to you and bring you to himself. Open your heart to the Lord. Call to him while he is near. Seek him with all of your heart. But the second thing I want you to grab hold of this morning is this. Being pure before God is not by law-driven works but open-hearted faith in Jesus Christ. Cornelius has sought the Lord. He has served the Lord. He has obeyed the Lord. He sends his people to Joppa to bring Peter back to hear the gospel. Well, as Cornelius and his entourage, as his entourage gets close to Joppa, Peter has a vision during his noon prayer time up there on the roof. It's lunchtime. Peter's hungry. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. So he's waiting for his host home to to make lunch. And it's in that moment, God is about to obliterate the Jewish mindset of obeying the law for God's approval. Peter has a vision where the skies open up and a large white sheet comes down. And inside the sheet are all the animals of the earth. And a voice he recognizes, says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responds, verse 14, no, Lord. Y'all, when's Peter going to learn? <laughs> May I say to you, don't say no to the Lord. You will lose every time. But Peter, he defends his dietary resume. Verse 14, Since he's been a little boy, he's arguing, he's obeyed Leviticus 11. He's never eaten anything unclean. But the problem is, Peter has missed the point of the dietary laws. Furthermore, Jesus has already made all foods clean. In Mark 7, we see where some Pharisees approach Jesus and his disciples, and they call them out because they are eating with unclean hands. And it's not because they didn't use antibacterial soap. 
It's because there are ceremonial laws on what one must do to clean their hands before they could eat. There were these rituals that the Jews had created that they had to have to make themselves able to eat with cleanliness. Well, Jesus says it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but what comes out of them that makes them unclean. And then Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean, meaning sin does not come from the food that you eat, but rather the overflow of your heart. Jesus addressed this further in Mark 7. When she says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. In Mark 7 and in Acts 10, Jesus is revealing to Peter that salvation is not found by keeping the law. It's not found by obeying God on the outside, but by trusting in Jesus alone on the inside. To put it another way, salvation is not first a matter of outward obedience, but a transformation of the heart's. Several years ago, Christy and I were watching this documentary of Orthodox Jews who were trying to obey Old Testament law in the modern day context. And I think they were in like Manchester, England in this documentary. And as we watched it, I felt frustrated and suffocated. And I even at times got angry as I was watching because these Orthodox Jews were following the strictest of laws, trying to keep the Old Testament and additional rules that they had come up with. And they lived in bondage in which they would try to make sure that they would only do certain things at certain times. For example, on the Sabbath, they had to leave, either leave the lights on or off on the Sabbath so that they did not do work. So they would sit in the dark or sit in the light and not move a muscle. They would try to keep these dietary laws. They were trying to do all of these Old Testament rules and regulations in the common world that you and I live in. And as we were watching it, I was like, my goodness, they're enslaved. They're trying so hard to keep the most meticulous of religious laws so as to be righteous, so that they can be clean before God. You see, God originally gave dietary laws to separate his people from all the nations of the earth. That through the way that they eat, the types of foods that they eat and they stay away from, they would look different than the world around, around them. But unfortunately, the people missed the point of these ritual laws. They saw these laws as means of salvation, meaning that if you did the right thing, then you would be right before God. If you ate the right kind of foods and you avoided the wrong kinds of foods, then you would be clean. As Christy and I watched this documentary, I just, I became frustrated and I, I would, I wanted to yell through the TV. In fact, at one point, I, I kind of raised my voice. I said, this is what Jesus died for. He died to set you free from this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Jesus came to set you free from the law. 
That through his death on the cross, he's made a way that you are no longer under law. You're now under grace. This is what Jesus came to do, is to set you free from the bondage of the law. You see, external ceremony and religious rituals and trying to keep the Old Testament law does not make you clean before God. In fact, the law reveals that you can't keep it. Jesus came into the world not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You see, every Old Testament law finds perfect fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect law giver and is the only perfect law keeper. See, now under the new covenant, the restrictions, they're over. And this was shocking to Peter. As we're going to see next week when we get to verse 17, he's perplexed by all that's being revealed to him. But you see, for these Jews, the mindset was that we have to keep the law for God to like us, for us to be accepted before him, to be pure before him. And here we live in the South, where many people think, well, as long as I go to church, then I'm right with God. I've been baptized, so I'm good. I I give a little bit to the church, so I'm fine. Me and God, we're good. I say to you, you cannot be right with God by your religious actions. Your church attendance does not save you. Your baptism does not save you. Your giving record does not save you. Your religious acts, they do not save you. Jesus alone is the one who saves you. You need the Lord Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly because he knew that you couldn't. He lived that life that you and I couldn't live. And then he died the death that we deserved. And at the cross, Jesus bled and suffered and died on your behalf to set you free from dead religion, to set you free from sin and death and hell and the grave, that Jesus came to set you free. Westwood, hear me on this. Your righteous works are not enough to save you. Jesus' righteous works are enough to save you. Bank your soul, not upon yourself, not upon how good you think you are, not on you being a good person because you're not, and it's not enough. You don't reach the standard of perfection. You're sitting there thinking, well, there's no one who's perfect. There's no one except one. Jesus is the perfect one. He is the one who fulfills Psalm 24, who says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has never lifted up his soul to an idol. That is the only one. And Jesus is the one who keeps the law perfectly. But when you put your faith in Jesus, he then empowers you to obey. This is where the gospel changes everything. You don't have to try and earn your way to heaven. You trust in Jesus' perfect work. And then out of the overflow of that, the gospel motivates you towards obedience. I'll say it like this. Good works come from your salvation, not for your salvation. Don't miss that. Far too many people, especially in our culture, who think that if I just be good, then I'm good before God, and you're not. It's not enough. 
If you and I could earn our way to heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. He had to go to the cross because apart from him, I'm broken. And my sin separates me from God. But I praise Jesus. He came and he took all of my sin upon himself. And through his death, he's made a way. That by his death, he's made a way for you to have access to the Father. That you can have a right standing before God, that you can be clean, not by religious works, but through faith in him. The gospel is where God came to set you free from sin and free from thinking that you have to behave or act or perform for God to like you. He's already gone on record. He loves you. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to try and earn God's favor. You put your faith in Jesus and you already have his favor. You have his son, his perfect son, who abides and lives inside of you forever. The one who promised, I'm never going to leave you, not for a second. I'm going to be with you every moment. And when you're on your deathbed, I'm holding fast to you. I've got you. And then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your faith becomes sight. You will see him and be with him and bask in his presence forever and ever. This is promise of scripture. So hold fast, not to your works. Hold fast to the works of Christ. Jesus is your salvation. But there's also something happening here in Acts chapter 10. Peter is about to find out that God is using clean and unclean animals as a metaphor for his church. By God calling all animals clean, he is erasing the clean and unclean food, but he's also merging two people groups together. Which means, Peter, those Gentiles that you've been stiff-arming, those Gentiles that you're not supposed to eat food with that you think that those people you don't hang out with, I want you to know they're about to get in on this. As we're going to see next week and, and later on in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit's coming for the Gentiles too. God is bringing a Gentile like Cornelius and a Jew like Peter, and he's going to bring the two of them together. And the Gentiles and the Jews are going to come together under a new covenant that's found in Jesus. You see, in the church of Jesus Christ, Gentiles and Jews are united together forever. R.C. Sproul said it really well about this text. He said, Peter's vision was not about food or animals. It was about people. It's not just Cornelius that God is reaching with the gospel. God's aim is to reach all peoples with the gospel. And Peter's vision was a picture of the inclusion of both Gentiles, unclean animals, and Jews, clean animals, coming into one body, the church. Jesus came to unite Jews and Gentiles together through the gospel. So now there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. We are one in Christ Jesus. This is a picture of an even greater reality in the church. And now what separates God's people is not circumcision. It's not dietary laws. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
what makes you unique and separate from all the other people, peoples of the earth is the fact that your heart has been transformed by the gospel. Your heart's been changed, therefore your life has been changed. It's not rituals or these religious acts that makes you different. It's Jesus. He is the one who has changed you from the inside out. And by his grace and for his glory, you've now been changed. And we get to go and show and tell the world the power and the beauty of his gospel. In fact, this is what I'm calling our church to. It's our impact point. It's this, bask in the reality that you are clean before God. Not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You're no longer under law, but you're under grace. They were naked and ashamed. They blew it. They messed up. And they couldn't believe what they had done. They tried to fix it on their own but they knew that they couldn't. Our first parents covered themselves with fig leaves, trying to cover up their shame. But God saw right through it. And so he took the initiative. He covered their shame through sacrifice. In Genesis 3, God sacrificed an animal. And then with those animal skins, he clothed our first parents. God did what they couldn't do. And so often you and I, when we sin, we are just like our first parents, naked and ashamed. And so many try to cover up their shame with good works, with religion, with trying to do all of these acts they're mere fig leaves. God sees right through it. So God did what we couldn't. He covered our shame through sacrifice. But the sacrifice that he offered was not the sacrifice of an animal, but the sacrifice of his one and only son. That Jesus at the cross was bloodied, shamed, naked and took your place. And all of your shame and my shame was placed on Jesus. He took our shame upon himself. So now we are clothed in his righteousness. We are covered by his grace. He no longer treats us as our sins deserve. He washes you and he makes you clean. He calls you a son and a daughter, adopts you into his family, provides for you an inheritance, prepares for you a home in heaven, promises that I go and prepare a place for you so that I may come again and bring you with me so that where I am, you may be also. That this Savior King Jesus came and made a way that through his death, you are no longer full of shame. But now you can hold your head up high, full of joy and confidence, not because of you, but because of Christ in you. That Jesus, the resurrected King, 
abides and lives inside of you, that he who was pure became impure so that we who are impure might become pure in him. And Jesus made a way through his death for you to be able to walk in the bask, in the beauty of all that he's accomplished for you in the gospel. So now you're no longer under law. You're under grace. Grace that forgives. Grace that enables. Grace that strengthens. Grace that promises you. You're no longer separated from me. I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. And this grace is a grace that is enough to bring together different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, and make us one, all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.